Good morning and welcome. We are glad that you're here with us. If you're joining us online, welcome. We are glad that you're here as well. Now, several years ago, actually eight now, because I remembered how old my son was, but uh, about eight years ago, when Whitney and I started sharing with people that we were having a son, we, we did that in kind of the small arenas of life of people that you know that you care about. I told my church league basketball team after four successful campaigns, uh, I told them, I said, guys, I'm, I'm having a son, I'm excited. And, and, you know, we did that with church, with the youth group, with, you know, different areas of life. And Whitney at the time was teaching in Madisonville, and she, like most teachers in that situation, told her students, she said, hey, everybody, you know, Miss Whitney, I'm, I'm going to have a, a son, we're going to name him Judah. And I'm sure I wasn't there, I'm sure the kids were like, woo, uh, I just insert kid excitement. <clears throat> but she tells her class and then kind of moves on. Until a few days later, she gets a phone call from a parent, uh, a kid named Evan. I believe that's his real name. Actually, I usually fake those names. But uh, anyway, she gets a call from Evan's mom and she says, Hey, I want to tell you something that Evan said when he came home. And apparently, after Whitney had shared with them that we were going to have a son named Judah. Uh, Evan wasn't listening very closely, and he said, Mom, you're never going to believe this. Miss Whitney is having a kid, and they're naming him after the betrayer, Judas. Now, we, uh, we, Kinders are not, we we don't try to, you know, knock down a bunch of stuff, but we were not going to be the people that tried to bring back the name Judas. Um, But in that moment, that kid was terrified, right? He was like, Oh my goodness, they are going to name their son Judas. How could this be? And what has, been, what has always been interesting about that story to me is that this young child knew Judas. But more than that, he knew what Judas was known for. It's how we all see Judas. And rightfully so, this is not a, a redemption sermon for Judas. But my larger point is, are we allowing how we view Judas to see how we understand Christ. See, the scene this morning begins during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And during this time, the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for a way to get rid of Jesus. And then enter Judas. The next verse here, Luke writes, Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. I've shared this a little bit before, and we'll hold right there for a moment. But I've shared this a little bit before that Luke, Luke is writing a historical document, but he also adds a little bit of, of drama as well. And I think you're seeing that a little bit in the story because this is an incredibly striking phrase. And it sends a clear message as to where this could potentially be leaving. So, for example, we, we know that when Satan enters individuals, like in Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39, that Satan has the ability to lead the person in sinister directions. But it's unsettling to me how fast the story changes in just a moment. See, we transition quickly from preparation to betrayal. And again, Luke does this probably to present some dramatic effect, but it works. You see, after Judas makes the offer... It says they were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. You need to see, too, this language of delight. 
Because this is the same word that Luke uses to describe when individuals encounter Christ. Another clear connection, an intentional connection, that that Luke is making use of words. He's trying to show you, like, hey, they are excited. They are as excited to take Jesus as people were to encounter Jesus. And you have to notice, too, that Judas and the chief priests and the teachers of them all know that isolation works in their favor. If they were doing this at their local Starbucks, or if you've been to Jerusalem, Star and Bucks, uh, for copyright reasons, but if they, they couldn't do this in a crowd. They did this in isolation, not to be foiled. But Luke, as he tells these stories, kind of goes back and forth. And the focus now transitions back to the original purpose of the story, a group of individuals intending to gather together for a meal. And just like last week's lesson, there was a task that Jesus had for some, and this is witnessed in these verses here. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. So this point in my life with, with the pain and the frustration that I and, and maybe you all have experienced at certain times, there is so much weight to, to meals like this. See, Luke loves talking about meals. Luke records over seven meals within his gospel, all of which emphasize this relationship building, this growth, this understanding. And you see that here as this meal is being prepared. Because as the the text that Stephanie read just a little while ago, everything is prepared for them. You see this in this next verse in 10 and 12. As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room? Where Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. Again, just like last week, the plan has already been put into place. The room has been furnished. Just imagine that the couches are set up. The table is prepared. It's everything is ready for this meal. And I've studied the Passover a, a, a large majority of my life. I've taught lessons on it. I've done communion talks. And I've explicitly referenced this phrase that we see next. Let's go to the next text for me. Skip those pictures. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. There's a lot of emotion here. But I want you to see that there's no awkwardness yet. I hope that you see this as I'm I'm reintroducing Judas into the story, that, that Judas still has a place at this table. When they're preparing this meal, they're not taking up Judas's placeholder. They're not saying, hey, Judas, you can't sit here. There's no room at the table for you because of what you've done behind the scenes. That's not what's happening here. And for all intensive purposes, they are preparing to share in a meal that they have likely walked through many times in their life. And if we're honest with ourselves, and if they were honest, some of them are probably ready to go through the motions. They've done this meal before. They understand the significance. But there are moments and times in life where communion slows us down. And yes, it is an opportunity to celebrate the sacrifice of Christ, but it also may be a time of pain and reflection. 
Before we left Kentucky, we were a part of a young adult life group, and we, we said a lot of goodbyes, and, and any time that you leave a church community, it's hard, and it's awkward, and it, it's painful. And probably one of the hardest groups of people to leave was this young adult life group that we were in. We were all in the same stage of life, walking through life together. You know, some of us were starting to have kids. We had just announced that we were having a kid, and saying goodbye to them hurt. And I'm, I'm always awkward when it comes to goodbyes. I, I, don't, I don't know how to do the right emotions with it. I, I, you know, do I shake your hand? Do I hug you? Is it, it's, does it feel like a high five on a goodbye? But maybe. Um, but my, my point is, like, I'm always kind of awkward in those moments. And I asked them, I said, hey, let's just hang out one last time. We'll get some food. It has to be good food. Um, I'm not coming otherwise. But let's have some food and let's just hang out. Let's not be weird about it. And those people looked at me and they were like, absolutely, and lied to my face. Because what they decided to do was they, they gifted Whitney and I with this communion set. It was this beautiful plate, and this beautiful cup, and it sits in my office today. And if I'm honest with you, as we took communion that night as a group, where I just thought we were having pizza, I didn't think that we were going to cry and be emotional about us leaving. Like, we, we broke the bread. We, we passed the juice. And it was the first time in my life that I felt like the pain of communion and how much it can hurt and how much it can drive us to this reflection and this experience of what Jesus was potentially going through in that moment. Because a lot of us, we've gone through the motions. We've passed the trays. You sit in the back. You, you've judged those cups. You know you have. You're like, has somebody drank out of this yet? Like, we've all been there. You sat in the back. You know what it means. That's why you sit in the front. Cups are good. Uh, this is a heavy sermon, so I'm trying to lighten it up just a little bit. But it's, it's here at this point, after Jesus says this, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, that he turns his attention to suffering and sacrifice. In Luke chapter 12, verse 19, Jesus takes the bread, gave thanks, and broke it. He gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do you feel the weight of this? Have you ever been in those moments where everything is so serious? I've worked with teens for the majority of my career, and I can tell you that there's always a, like a wisecrack or somebody that tries to just break the awkwardness of how serious and how heavy this is. And the people that Jesus has surrounded himself with at this point in his life, they're young men dare I say, immature. But nobody snickers. Nobody says anything to break the ice, or nobody says anything to be like, oh, this is too heavy for me, Jesus. Because I think for, for the first time in a long time, maybe they understand that this Passover meal is different. This one is heavy. This one has weight to it. As the text says, in a similar way, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. It, it's here that we focus so much and we, we turn our attention to how we do communion, right? And we, we pass the trays or we have the little cups now. Like we, we turn our attention to the focus of those elements. But I want to remind you that Judas is still there. Judas is at the table. Remember that we have read this story before, but they are living it. No one outside of Jesus knew what had happened prior to this. 
So as Jesus is discussing breaking the bread, doing the physical action of taking a loaf of bread, breaking it in half, passing it to the next person, taking the wine, pouring it into the cup, passing it to the next person, Judas is there. This understanding should challenge how we look at the next line. Where Jesus says, But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it is decreed, but woe to that man who betrays me. When I've read this passage my entire life, I immediately connect to Judas. I do. Because we know how this story ends. But Judas isn't named, Judas isn't removed. We don't have this scene where all the disciples look and they turn to Judas and they're like, there he is, Jesus, that's him. And even though Judas has already betrayed Jesus, even though Judas has already turned his heart away from Christ, Jesus still welcomed him to the table. He still extended the cup and offered the bread because the table isn't for the healthy, the table is for the broken. There has and likely should be so much focus on Judas as the betrayer. But I need you to see something about the rest of the disciples before we shut the case on Judas. Because Judas isn't the only one at the table. Judas's sins and betrayals are a clear focal point in this story, but they are not the only ones present. This is witnessed in verse 23. The disciples began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. They all start fighting and thinking, who could it be? Now Jesus knows. But the rest of them don't. This is one of the most overlooked elements of this story that they all see within each other that they too are capable of doing this. Yet they too, with their sins, with their doubts, with their rejections and, and future denials, are invited to the same table for the same meal. Christ has also extended the cup, which represents the blood of Christ that was shed for them, and extends the bread representing the body of Christ that was broken for them. I've said it before, and I've talked about my kids a lot in sermons. But when I look at how the disciples argue with each other, it just reminds me of my kids. These circular arguments that they don't go anywhere. And they feel like you're talking about the same thing over and over and over again. Because after the disciples start looking at each other, evaluating their lives, Thinking, oh, who could it be? I think it's you. I think it's definitely you. I I didn't know where you were last night. I bet you were out planning a betrayal. The very next thing the disciples do is they go back to an argument that they have had time and time and time again. Verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Think about that for just a moment. You're at the Passover meal with Jesus. You've had this heavy experience where Jesus is offering you bread, saying that it represents his body that will be broken for you. He extends the cup, which says this represents the blood that is shed for you. 
And then Jesus says, someone's going to betray me. You start pointing fingers at the people around you. And then you're like, all right, now that we've settled that, who's going to be first? It's these circular arguments. They keep finding themselves in a worse place than the one that they started at. And again, referencing my kids, what the disciples are doing 100% reminds me of their actions. So they don't get it. And even when Jesus decides to discuss something serious, they miss the mark. The scene ends with this extended passage talking about service. And Jesus says these words, Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. Who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? It's not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves. This, this collection that Jesus does right after they, they talk about who is the greatest is striking because it again turns our attention, as Luke is doing this intentionally, but it again turns our attention to service, which is the purpose of Jesus on this earth, to serve, to love, to heal. And in this you can see when he says the phrase, but I am among you as the one who serves, I think this is the moment. I think this is why Judas betrayed Jesus. If we were to go all the way back to the first, we're not going to, but if we were to go all the way back to where we started, where we talked about Satan entering into Judas. I believe that Satan was controlling this, that Satan had taken control and hold of Judas's heart. But if we really try to evaluate Judas for just a little bit this morning... I think this question of why still haunts me. I think we, when we read through the Last Supper, when we read through the betrayal scene, it's easy for us to say, okay, G- Judas betrayed Jesus, let's move on to the, the communion scene, and then we'll go to the betrayal, and then we'll, we'll keep going. But I think it's important for us to look at the why. And I think the why is verse 27. I think Judas betrays Jesus. Why Judas chose in his heart to betray Jesus, his heart taken over by Satan. I think the reason why he does it is because he recognizes that Jesus wasn't who he thought he was. Even though Jesus had told them time and time again that he would not overthrow the Romans. At the end of this particular scene, they're like, all right, how many swords are we bringing? They don't get it. Every time Jesus tries to redirect their attention to think, do you understand what I'm doing here? Do you understand that my focus now is on giving my body for you? They just sat through the most intense communion talk of any of their lives where somebody is saying, my body is for you. And the first thing they do is they say, which one of us is going to be first? And so again, in, in the next section, Jesus starts talking about service. Now, I think the decision, obviously, to betray Jesus happens well before this. But verse 27 represents to me Judas's why. Jesus wasn't who he thought he was. See, Judas held out hope, I think. 
Judas stayed on for a very long time. He's at the Last Supper. But think about what Judas experienced. Judas saw the miracles. Judas saw the healings. He heard the lessons. He saw the crowds. Judas, in his heart, saw the earthly potential for a revolution. Yet what Jesus decides to do time and time again is to serve. Jesus continues to offer himself as a sacrifice and make his identity about giving and loving. And whether we realize it or not, I believe there was a moment in Judas's life where he said, enough. I told you this was going to be kind of heavy. There was a moment where Judas said, enough. I don't know when it was. Maybe it was after the triumphal entry, and he saw that Jesus had no interest in overthrowing the government. Maybe it was along the lines where when they're talking about revolution, Jesus is like, that's not what I'm here for. When Judas realized that he thought, this isn't what I want it to be. This isn't what I signed up for. Jesus, do you know what we could do on this earth? Do you know how we could rule, Jesus, if you would just let us basically direct you? Judas says, I'm out. And on my way out, I can at least get a payday. And like we've already read, Judas makes a choice. Judas chooses to betray and hand Jesus over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And the thing that I need you to see this morning is that in all of that, Judas still had a seat at the table. The body of Christ was broken for Judas, and the blood of Christ was shed for Judas. When they share in the Passover meal, when Jesus breaks the bread and shares the, ju- the wine, there is no awkwardness. There is no removal of Judas. He is there participating and taking in the elements. To me, that, that represents a lot of why Christ died. He didn't cry, die for one individual, but he cry, died for all of us. And so as we enter into this week, this is my challenge this week, Let us attempt to offer the same hospitality and love that Christ shows to even those who will hurt and break him. Again, Jesus doesn't remove Judas. He doesn't shout at Judas. He doesn't call him out. And in my heart, I think Jesus had every right to say, you are going to betray me. You've already betrayed me. We've seen the images before where Judas has the the coins with him at the Last Supper. But in all of that, he still has a seat at the table. Because that's what communion is. It's an invitation to remember, to reflect, and to celebrate the body of Christ that was broken for all of us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And so this week, let us attempt to show that same hospitality and that same love to those that we encounter. It's not easy, and it's not fun. But it's what we're supposed to do. We are called to love, and we are called to welcome people to the table, the same table that we are invited to. Let's stand and sing together.